Hi, and welcome to this installment of our new Books at the Heyman Center panel podcast, sponsored by Columbia's Office of the Divisional Deans and the Faculty of Arts and Sciences, and the Society of Fellows and Heyman Center for the Humanities. I'm Olivia Branscombe. And I'm Tim Lundy. The presentations you are about to hear come from an event held on November 16th, 2020, honoring the work of Matthew Hart, an associate professor of English and Comparative Literature at Columbia University. Professor Hart studies 20th and 21st century literature, and his work explores connections between contemporary literature and the visual arts, as well as the relationship of both these spheres to political history. In his 2020 book, Extraterritorial, A Political Geography of Contemporary Fiction, Professor Hart studies contemporary novels and artwork that don't associate themselves with a particular country or national history. But these works don't imagine a completely interconnected world either, or a world in which political states lose their power. Instead, Professor Hart's book explores spaces that he calls extraterritorial, places like the waiting area at an international airport that are outside of national borders, but still reinforce those borders. Professor Hart argues that books and artwork that engage with extraterritorial spaces show us that contemporary state power actually benefits from the flexibility and ambiguity of national borders. First, we will hear him illustrate this argument by reading a bit from the first chapter of his book, which gives some examples of extraterritorial spaces and the kinds of artwork and literature that he studies. Then, we will hear a response from Merve Emre, an associate professor of English at the University of Oxford. I wanted to begin um, with a land acknowledgement. Um, Cold Spring and Manhattan, the two places that I wrote most of this book, are located on the historic lands of the Muncie tribe of the Lenape Nation, and it seemed fitting to me to begin today's discussion of the complicated political geographies of the present by acknowledging the multiple and contested sovereignties of the places that I and many of us here call home. So I've done a number of things recently where I talked about the book to various people, um, and hopefully some of that learning how to talk about one's complicated academic projects to people that haven't read it. Hopefully I've learned something about that that will be helpful today. But I wanted to begin by actually reading from the book rather than just describing it, giving you a sense of what it's like as a piece of writing. And so what I've done is I've sort of cut together the top and tail of chapter one of Extraterritorial. Here it is. Uh, chapter one is titled Zone, and it begins with a story about a strange art warehouse in Geneva, and it ends with a description of several artworks by the British artist Mark Wallinger. And so I've tried to say something both about the larger political geographic stakes of the book, the argument, the historical and theoretical argument of the book, but also to give you a sense of the kinds of critical readings that it entails and what the consequences for some of that history might be for people that are interested in contemporary art and literature. So here we go. They come for the security and stay for the tax treatment. David Siegel's quip about the super rich arrives a little way into his New York Times story about the strange institution known as the Geneva Freeport a vast warehouse home to an unfathomably large collection of art objects, all sheltered from sales tax and customs duties. 
In this age of market volatility and low interest rates, the very wealthy have developed a habit of investing in collectible commodities. The valuable objects they purchase are then stored in armored and climate controlled vaults, safe from thieves and the elements, unlooked at, but appreciating in value. Siegel's story begins with a tale about a room stacked high with Picassos. In the next vault along, someone is counting gold bars. According to one expert, the Geneva Freeport functions as a clearinghouse for the international art trade, with more than half of the art traded globally through auctions and direct sales moving through its vaults. But really, nobody knows how many artworks are stored or sold there, and no one can guess at their value. This is because the Freeport's privacy policies, added to lax Swiss regulations, mean that even insurance conglomerates cannot calculate the extent of their clients' holdings or of their own exposure. The Geneva Freeport status as an onshore tax suspension zone relies on the legal fiction that items stored within it are still technically in transit, even if their owners bought them there and never intend to remove them from storage. A painting or a case of wine might be sold, stored, and then sold on without ever leaving the Freeport and without ever incurring sales or importation taxes. The Freeport is a fiscal no man's land, an extraterritorial loophole within one area of the state's traditional sovereign competency. It's the perfect example for how a global cultural sphere is produced by the circulation of people and things within an extraterritorial geography. And that's why I begin here today. In extraterritorial, I tell this story about the Freeport as I start to back up one of my main empirical claims. That is that 21st century people live within a fractured and desegregated political geography in which borders have not been erased but have been mobilized and multiplied, appearing throughout what we once briefly mistook for integral territorial states. We need to understand this geography, I argue, if we're to understand how art and literature relates to globalization, how it's shaped by global political economy, and how it provides us imaginative resources to respond to the experience of living beyond the territory. Now, if you want to fully understand what I mean by all that, then I'm sorry to say you'll have to read my book, or at least the introduction, like all good academics do. But for a brief illustration of how those claims might matter, let me turn to an artwork I examine at the end of the Freeport chapter, the British artist Mark Wallinger's video installation, Threshold to the Kingdom. Threshold to the Kingdom has two main elements. The first consists of slow motion footage of international travelers arriving at London City Airport. The second key element is a soundtrack consisting of a recording of Gregorio Alegre's Miserere, a 17th century setting of Psalm 51, have mercy on me, O God. For all the apparent simplicity of its construction, there's complex formal work going on in Threshold to the Kingdom. Wallinger says that his use of slow motion footage involved an implied rebuke to the presumed gravitas of the American artist Bill Viola's decelerated videos, in which the mere fact of slow motion projection creates a kind of easy visual sublimity. And so it goes. Even mashed up against its astonishingly lovely soundtrack, the visual channel of Threshold remains brutally dull, with Wallinger refusing to transmute monotony into sublimity. His camera stays fixed, 
never tracking to follow a traveler and inquire where she's going. His lighting is dimly institutional and his single shot is imperfectly framed, neither tight enough on the door to crowd out the visual noise of planters and pedestrian barriers, nor wide enough to give a full sense of setting and context. This anti-gravitational quality also a threat affects the work's engagement with its latent religious content. It's impossible to miss how Wallinger's overlay of music and video produces a Christian allegory in which the airport traveler's cross-border movement conjures up another form of transport, the soul's migration between this world and the next. For international arrivals, read Pearly Gates. But within and before Wallinger's religious allegory lie more mundane reference, the banal securitized architecture of the airport and the gloomy self-absorbed faces of the travelers. The photographic eye in Threshold resembles less the divine omniscience of God than the petty intrusion of a low-res surveillance camera. Speaking about Threshold, Wallinger once explained that while he once thought he was afraid of flying, he eventually realized he was scared of the airport. Quote, it was that incredible scrutiny, the state examining one, which you don't feel anywhere else, the powerful relief you feel when you finally reach home or the state you're trying to reach seems rather like confession and absolution. In the same way that not everybody gets into heaven, so is the threshold between the arrivals hall and the internal border, the province of properly documented sheep not undocumented goats. The grainy quality of the footage and the unmoving eye of the camera drive home this sense of threshold as documenting a scene of routine social and political election. It's this securitized everydayness that explains why Wallinger's travelers appear so boring and insubstantial. They're not ghosts, they're nothings. They're not paranoid, they're merely observed. They do not protest. They are barely even asked to acquiesce. They are lucky enough to carry their citizenship lightly. Wallinger's travelers have been judged. Their very arrival testifies to the fact that judgment is taking place. But having been chosen, the traveler's job in Threshold is to depart the center of the action. As its title suggests, Threshold focuses on the partially seen transit zone, the doors to which lie at the center of its unmoving vision. The threshold is the space of an entrance that is also a space of election and judgment. It's, this, it's the volume framed and exposed by the yawning and grinding jaws of the security door. It's not a doorway, but a zone of indeterminate dimensions that we glimpse only briefly from a position within national space. This is why once they become the elect, Wallinger's travelers no longer hold our gaze. By the time we see them, they are already blessedly Null. Our eyes are locked instead upon the operations of an extraterritorial zone that remains only partly visible, the power of which resides in its ability to be at once strange and familiar, at once within and outside the kingdom. Where are we in the Freeport? Where are we once we've landed but not yet passed passport control? There is a threshold to the kingdom a zone of plural and disaggregated authority. It's more common than you think, and it reveals a geography of power that is all the more real for being anything but singular. Thank you. Next, we will hear a response to extraterritorial 
from Merve M. Ray, an associate professor of English at the University of Oxford. Professor M. Ray is a scholar of 20th and 21st century literature, as well as a literary critic, and is widely known for her 2018 book, The Personality Brokers, a cultural history of the Myers-Briggs personality test. In her response, Professor M. Ray lays out the political argument of extraterritorial and reflects on the book's explanatory power. Afterward, we will hear Professor Hart say a few words about how his thinking about extraterritoriality has been affected by the COVID-19 pandemic. Thank you, Matt. For reasons that are as mysterious to me as they must be to you, I started reading Matthew Hart's extraterritorial from the wrong end, the final paragraph of the final chapter. Perhaps I wanted to ensure myself against the lazy practice common to respondents and reviewers of quoting only from the book's introduction. Perhaps I just wanted to see how much of the book I had to read was footnotes. Or perhaps like the narrator of Hilary Mantel's Wolf Hall, the subject of Extraterritorial's fourth chapter, A Border That Is Not a Border, I suspected that the ending would tell me where and how to begin. There are no endings, Mantel writes. If you think so, you are deceived as to their nature. They are all beginnings. Here is one. Here, however, are not one but two beginnings for extraterritorial, a sharp, nimble, and occasionally very funny study of the contemporary novel and its capacity to theorize how power and place, sovereignty and setting do and do not coincide. And I should say, in a year like this, there's something delightful and soothing in reading a book written by a friend and hearing the idiosyncrasies of his voice coming through loud and clear as if Matt were right there shouting at me across a crowded table. The end articulates with greater bravado than the beginning, both the political and the aesthetic frames of the book. The political argument arrives first and it arrives thunderously. The territorial state was never the historical norm it has been supposed to be, Hart writes. Extraterritorial refuses the Westphalian myth of the interstate system, which defines legitimate political authority in and through relations between exclusive and territorially inviolable sovereignties, and which neorealist John Mearsheimer once imagined as a pool table with billiard balls that vary only in size. It also refuses what Hart calls the claptrap of globalization and its cosmopolitan ideology, whereby the pool table suddenly transforms into a single small village or a flat earth. The balls are pocketed, the sticks mounted, and the circulation of literature, like the circulation of all commodities, is imagined as frictionless and even healed. Against Westphalian myth and cosmopolitan fantasy, extraterritorial asks us to consider what Hart calls the realities of governance. These realities turn on the state's strategic disaggregation of power, on its willingness to extend its power across international borders, to negotiate, to limit that extension in order to make free or international space, to create jurisdictional lacunae within their own territory, Hart writes. Neither open nor closed, within or without, extraterritoriality is the dialectical condition by which the international gets embedded in national states of being and belonging. As such, it emerges as the long overdue conceptual counterpart to what political scientists in the late 1970s and 1980s identified as the school of democratic internationalism, sometimes called liberal internationalism, and which was largely lost to us amidst the bluster of real politique or co-opted by the blarney of globalization. 
Consider how extraterritorial echoes the opening argument of Robert Cohen and Joseph Nye's classic book, Power and Independence, first published in 1977 to, quote, provide more accurate accounts of world political reality. The agenda of interstate relations consists of multiple issues that are not arranged in a clear or consistent hierarchy, announced Cohen and Nye. Governments regularly create international regimes, institutional spaces and rules that link domestic political actions to those emanating from abroad, and are thus capable of arranging multi-layered interactions across state boundaries, from international trade to immigration to environmental protection. The repeated strategic disavowal and reavowal of sovereignty is what made large-scale international cooperation possible, and according to more radical uptakes of internationalism, what made peace, justice, and maybe eventually the slow dismantling of global capitalism thinkable. Ironically, given its emphasis on reality over structuralist flights of fancy, liberal internationalism has a long track record of being marginalized for its alleged utopianism, or as international relations scholars Stephen Haggard and Beth Simmons write, its lingering taint of idealism. Apparently, Norman Engel, winner of the Nobel Peace Prize and author of the internationalist classic, The Great Illusion, was warned by his friends that he would end up, quote, classed with cranks and faddists, with devotees of higher thought who go about in sandals and long beards, live on nuts. It seems only fitting then that serious considerations of internationalism would migrate to literature and literary study, capable of absorbing and refracting this lingering utopianism in fascinatingly productive ways. Enter the aesthetic claim of extraterritorial, which understands the contemporary novel as a speculative resource for how international relations oscillates between the one and the many, the coerced and the free, writes Hart. For him, the novelistic genres best primed to represent extraterritoriality are those that are themselves contingent, perched on the cusp of literary value and recognition. The novels he examines are thus not realist fictions, but what Samuel Delaney calls the paraliterary genres, science fiction, detective fiction, apocalyptic fiction, and to a somewhat lesser degree, historical fiction. As a speculative resource, the novel deepens the political dialectic of extraterritoriality. On the one hand, the novel can intensify the illusion that the state, its territories, and its people are perfectly coextensive with one another, raising the specter of a state that is reducible to the police and identical with sovereign violence, Hart writes. On the other hand, it can puncture this illusion over and over again, revealing the ordinary wonder of human social and institutional commitments, the unbounded bonds of friendship and duty that can't be reduced to the will to give law to others without their consent, he concludes. The novel is the form capable of transposing the everyday utopian tainted realities of extraterritoriality's plural and disaggregated authority into the uncanniness of setting in China Mieville's The City and the City, of narrative voice in Chang Rei Li's On Such a Full Sea, and of temporality in Emily St. John Mandel's Station Eleven and Mantel's Wolf Hall. It is the richly imagined social and material world of the novel that stops the extraterritorial from dispersing into some catch-all term for rootlessness, an allegory for the transcendental homelessness of modern man or the autonomy of art. Rather, it insists on extraterritoriality as generating a feeling of bereft cosmopolitanism, Hart writes, a form of cultural estrangement that keeps history activated, if not at the forefront of our attention, then still lurking visible. Homes, whether familiar or political, are at once inescapable and intolerable, Hart concludes. He is speaking of Zabald's fiction, but the line made me think of my children. 
On their father's side, they have claimed their membership in the Ojibwe First Nation of Sault Ste. Marie, a half American, half Canadian port city on the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. Their great-grandfather was the lighthouse keeper of Mackinac Island in the middle of the lake. When he wasn't tending the wick, he was helping Ojibwe fishermen resolve disputes over their fishing rights. And his argument was always the same. It was irrelevant whether they had fished in American or Canadian waters or what the American or Canadian fishing laws were. The Ojibwe's treaty rights predated the very existence of the nations that now claim the Ojibwe as either an alien or a dependent nation within the state's territory. On my side, they have renounced their Turkish citizenship which would have given them the right to inherit the land that has been in my family for almost a century. But it would have also legally obligated them to two years of military service once they turned 21, no matter where in the world they happen to live, under the threat of extradition and arrest if they refuse to comply. And had they complied, they would have had to return to Turkey to participate in the violent project of Turkish nationalism that, that cohered around the dissolution of the Ottoman Empire and continues in one form or another to this day. My extraterritorial offspring, which is how I've started to address them when they annoy me, very nicely encapsulate the outside within dimension of extraterritoriality that Hart describes. But they also bring to my mind a different literary archive for extraterritoriality than the one amassed in his book. The novelist Hart considers whatever their professed anti-colonial, anti-capitalist or anti-Eurocentric politics may be, nevertheless represent the internationally prized writers of bourgeois literary culture. How might the archive expand if a term like region or regionalism played a more prominent role in the dialectic between the national and the international? Then extraterritoriality as befits its status as contingent and contradictory might draw into its orbit a group of writers less easily assimilated to international literary prestige. On the American side, such an archive might include novelists for whom the reservation is the setting of extraterritorial drama, like N. Scott Momaday, Louise Erdrich, Leslie Marmon Silko, and Stephen Graham Jones. On the Middle Eastern side, it might include novelists that institutionalize the memory of empire contra nation and do so through the creation of fantastic asynchronous extraterritorial spaces like Ahmed Hamdi Tampanar's The Time Regulation Institute or Jabra Ibrahim Jabra's The Ship. None of this is a criticism of extraterritorial, rather it is my testament to how well it fulfills its promise to show us the ordinary workings of political geography at home, wherever that may be, and abroad. One of the things that's obviously interesting to me, even though, you know, watching the pandemic unfold is just, you know, it's a, a, a slow motion car wreck, at least here in the United States, and, and horrible to behold, but to the extent that one gets any kind of intellectual satisfaction out of horrible events, it's proof positive of one of the claims of the book, which is that you can't think through the nature of what a globally connected society might be without including a proper consideration of national states and bordering regimes. The idea that a metaphor of borderlessness ever did or ever could describe the thing we call globalization that's an argument which I try and dispense with early in the book. Um, so the idea here is that, that, that there's no short of a vaccine, there's very few good weapons that we have against pandemic diseases and their abilities to travel across the world. But one of the weapons that we have are border controls, whether those are local border controls, such as the kind of quarantine restrictions that New York State and an increasingly large number of states have been putting in place, or whether those are things like the ban on China, 
that our uh, still president likes to boast about having put in place. Um, but whether we're talking about you know, serious or unserious kinds of, of, of public health action, it's clear that barriers to human movement are one of the ways, whether those are local or international nature, are one of the ways in which the progress of the disease, even if only incompletely, has been arrested in place to place. Another way of looking at this is if you look at a map of the, of the difference of, of infection rates in Canada and the United States, right? These are two remarkably similar countries in all sorts of ways. One of the things that they differ is that there's a border between them. Um, and th that border marks two different national strategies of response uh, to the infection. So again, it's a globally uh, circulating disease. And yet it's clear that policies that are enacted at the level of the nation state, whether those involve border controls or whether those involve other public health measures, make a difference. Um, so that's just the one thing I'd say is that it, it demonstrates the, the inutility of trying to think about global culture without reference to, to, to the national state and its bordering regimes. Thanks so much for listening to today's podcast celebrating Matthew Hart's Extraterritorial. This concludes our series of Fall 2020 events from the Hayden Center. We hope you'll join us next time for the first of our Spring 2021 episodes. From Columbia University's Society of Fellows and Hayman Center for the Humanities, I'm Tim Lundy. And I'm Olivia Branscombe. Our theme music is the song Moonrise by Poddington Bear from soundofpicture.com. <laughs>